When we delve into some of the sacred literature of women from different traditions and different cultures over centuries, there's a number of themes, what we might even call a kind of collective language, a language of the heart, a language of longing, which very clearly crosses traditions and cultures and time. And reading some of this literature, you get a sense of how many women have really rooted their spiritual path in the ground of love, in the ground of the heart, in the ground of empathy and interconnectedness. And I'd like to read you a few poems from different cultures, different times. It was a 13th century Flemish nun who wrote, The madness of love is a blessed fate, and if we understood this, we would seek no other. It brings into unity what was divided, and this is the truth. Bitterness it makes sweet, It makes a stranger a neighbor, and what was lowly, it raises on high. Queen Makadi of Sheba, she wrote, Wisdom is sweeter than honey. It brings more joy than wine. Illumines more than the sun, is more precious than jewels. She causes the ears to hear, and the heart to comprehend. I love her like a mother, and she embraces me as her own child. I will follow her footprints, and she will not cast me away. And one of the earliest Taoist nuns in the same vein wrote, Meditating at midnight, meditating at noon, A mind like autumn comes to the way's deep heart. Under motionless waves, fish and dragons freely leap. In the sky without limits, only the moonlight stays. I think what we hear in these poems, and many like them, is, is a yearning for a boundless heart, a boundless love an almost kind of transcendent love and wisdom, a love that liberates, a love that brings peace where there is conflict and division, that heals where there is brokenness. In the teaching of Metta, the Buddha also speaks of this boundless love and kindness, saying, Put away all hindrances. Let your mind full of love pervade one quarter of the world, and so too the second quarter, and so the third and the fourth, and then the whole wide world, above, below, around, and everywhere, all together continue to pervade with a love-filled mind, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, 
freed from hatred and ill will. Just as women's sacred literature is pervaded with this theme of love, a heart of longing, so too does the theme of connectedness with nature as a ground of awakening really repeat itself again through different times and cultures. The seeking for an embodied spiritual path rooted in the cycles of nature that so poignantly remind us of the seasons of our own lives and the lives of all of those around us. Births and deaths, beginnings and endings, arising and passing. The message that is really written upon all of this is a reminder, a call for us to find a way to live in this world aligned with and at peace with this rhythm, to live with respect and integrity and compassion and freedom, to live truly a fearless life. A Taoist nun wrote, Late Indian summers, soft breeze fanning out. The sun shines on the hidden cottage south of the river. December and the apricot's first flowers open. A person looks, the blossom looks back. Plain heart, seeing into plain heart. And from Japan, an early nun living in the mountains in a very simple hut. She says, although I try to hold the single thought of Buddha's teaching in my heart, I cannot help but hear the many crickets' voices calling as well. I think the theme of what comes through this poetry is the speaks of women whose <clears throat> hearts have opened through this marriage of both solitude, aloneness, and interconnectedness, treasuring the inner solitude, knowing its deep and transforming importance, but also being able to listen to the cricket's voices. And the cricket's voices are the cries of the world. And in a very real sense, solitude is needed if we are to hear them. In ma for many of these women, nature was their dearest teacher, speaking to the timeless themes of liberation, to know within themselves a very deep and unshakable emptiness of separation and emptiness of selfing. And we think of the many lessons that nature offers us every day. How nature reminds us of a way of a deep harmony and peace in our lives, of not holding ourselves apart in any way from the natural rhythms of all things, from their beginnings and their endings. It perhaps reminds us that nothing is fixed for a single moment. Our self, 
in ourself or anything in life, that the only thing that fixes anything, places anything in place for more than a single moment, that tries to make something solid, the only thing that does that is our view, that apart from our view of it, nothing remains fixed in place, unchanging. These poems remind us to live in the ground of, of steadiness and unshakability, in the face of birth and death, to know the freedom of not holding anywhere. Rhiannon, an early Japanese nun, who, who lived a life that was filled with losses and grief and disappointments, she wrote her last poem before her death. She says, as I grow old, I tend to be melancholy when the seasons pass, but I live on and see the flowers fall. <laughs> Leaving, I know it is hard to know when we meet again, so I must be comforted by travel. Facing the end of spring, I am 66 years old. It is autumn. I have lived a long life. Moonlight shines strongly on my face. We don't need to discuss the koans. Just listen to the wind in the cedars outside. Perhaps we can also sense that the longing for a boundless love and the connection with nature, the natural world are really not in any way separate themes that in the face of this changing, uncertain world and body, in the face of this life that we cannot control, a life that is truly ungraspable, that liberation may mean for us the willingness to let go, to release a little bit, the relentless desire to control and to grasp hold of things. Perhaps its lesson is to teach us to let go of the endlessly frustrating endeavors and attempts to pin anything down or to call anything our own. The Buddha encouraged us to bring this reflection into all things. This is not me. This does not belong to me. This is not who I am. In the face of birth and death, the adversity and struggle we meet in our own lives, and in the face, of course, of the desperate suffering and torment that we see in the world, perhaps we begin to understand that the deepest and the wisest response, and perhaps the only response that we can truly make, and that truly makes a difference, is to nurture a boundless and unconditional love that is a refuge to ourselves and that is a refuge for all beings. To let that boundless loving-kindness pervade all the quarters of the world, to be embodied in our thoughts and speech and acts. 
think in the poetry and the stories of these mystical women and their journeys, what we do sense and hear is a longing for to discover a very deep and profound connectedness that embraces themselves as individuals and the uniqueness of their own stories, but equally to realize a vastness and larger sense of being that surely goes beyond the confines of this narrowness of a separate sense of self that we really do too often find ourselves inhabiting. And this marriage of inner respect, the respect for this being, and the sense of vastness is not in any way an invitation to try to annihilate ourselves, but perhaps to more deeply understand that our sense of who we are, our sense of self, our story, the story of our lives, is both part of and an expression of a universal story. That in many ways our hearts and minds, our longings and fears, they're echoed in countless other stories. And a boundless heart truly does not exclude anyone and any, or anything. And I do think we, we hear the echoes. We hear the echoes of these mystical women over time in our own hearts and minds. That we too can sense this, this very ancient longing, a longing that brings us here, a longing that brings us back when we get lost, a longing that encourages us to persevere when all things seem impossible. The great teacher Dogen, he wrote, Enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. Although its light is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky is reflected even in a single dewdrop. Enlightenment does not divide you, just as the moon does not break the water. You cannot hinder enlightenment, just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. But the depth of the drop is the height of the moon. Each reflection, however long or short it lasts, manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitlessness of the moonlight in the sky. We all have joy and moments of peace and happiness in our lives. So too do all beings. We all have our own measure of loss and disappointment, of grief and struggle. So too do all beings. We are all touched by aging and sickness and death. So too are all beings. Our capacity for hatred and love live side by side in our own hearts as they do in all beings.
our capacity to live in a fearful or anxious way, blaming or despairing is one pathway we can follow in this life. But our capacity to live with balance and equanimity, with wholeness and sensitivity and compassion, this is another pathway we can all walk. I think we often think of our journey or usually think of our journey in a hierarchical way. But somehow we must first restore and recover and heal and reclaim ourselves. That first we somehow must attend to our own torments and struggles in our personal world. We may feel or believe that our capacity for compassion for others is contingent first upon healing ourselves. That somehow we must be inwardly perfect to be compassionate. It's so easy to think first of self, then of others. But perhaps there are also times when, and also moments, when we get a glimmer and a sense that among all the torments in our life, the hurt, the pain, the loss, the greatest torment of all is actually that it is my torment, my hurt, my pain my disappointment. And then that filters into everything, my path, my journey, my work, my success, my failure, my progress or my lack of progress. And perhaps there is a possibility that we can shift our perspective a little. It is true that our story and our life in its events and its experiences, is different than any other life and different than any other story. To be treated with dignity and respect, responsiveness. Yet apart from the events and the experiences that make our story ours, our story is in truth the story of all life, of all beings. It's the language of the human heart. The capacity to be hurt and injured, the longing for safety and protection, the longing to be free from pain, the longing for love and acceptance, for freedom, is actually the language of the human heart. It is the moon and the dewdrop. I think the great art, the great art of the spiritual life is to acknowledge and to respect the personal and the individual. And at the same moment, to deeply know and trust that the personal is part of a whole and expression of a whole that all beings are actually inhabiting this same world of longing to be cared for and understood, to be free from torment. When we look out, when we look in, we see the torment, the pain of another is not just theirs. It is actually also ours. That the happiness and the safety of another is not just theirs, it is also ours. And sometimes I think we can begin to sense our life, the whole of life, 
as a single organism that is breathing together, feeling together, suffering together, and awakening together. Then the path that we walk is not my path or practice, but it is really a participation in the healing and the awakening of our world. Milarepa, great teacher of the past, he once said that just as I would instinctively reach out to touch the pain or the wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not instinctively reach out to touch the pain or the wound of another as part of this body? I think in much of the sacred literature and poetry of the past and present, we see this, hear this ongoing search of how to live in the world and how to embody compassion and freedom. Now, one thing that I I think is, is really important to get a sense of is that One of the recurring themes, obviously, that we hear in the great mystics and yogis of the past and present is often about leaving the world. You know, we hear about all the great yogis of the past and the present who go to deserts and to mountaintops, to the solitude of caves, to live a secluded, a solitary life. And it is a very inspiring model. It is something, I think... uh, a truly inspiring model. When I see the monastics of today, the men and the women in our culture, the monastics, I only need to see them in my heart sings because somehow they are the guardians, the carriers, the, the, the embodiment of a, a kind of uh, just vast simplicity and commitment in which so much has been let go of. And yet we also see in our own lives this very strong yearning to be connected. And of course, for many women, their lives have this very strong element of caring for others within them, caring for family, caring for children, caring for many. And it sometimes seems to be very almost contradictory or challenging to think, how do we bring this together? You know, how do we bring the mountaintop into that connected life? How do we bring that connected life into the mountaintop? In many ways, I think this is, this is truly important. I mean, I know in times of crisis, you know, you might think, where is the nearest monastery? But I don't actually see many of you here really on your way to embrace that life for many, many reasons, I think, which are equally to be respected. And I do have a sense that somehow we can get very dualistic about solitude and connectedness to see that it feel that it is kind of like one or the other. You know, and sometimes if we choose to live in 
choose that pathway of embodied connected relationships, we might feel somehow that our path is a little bit kind of second class. Um, but to me, a part of a big part of this practice is actually transcending that dualism. You know, when the Buddha spoke about being alone, he didn't speak about it actually as a geographical situation. Actually, when he just talked about aloneness, he really talked about not leaning upon anything, not leaning upon anyone. He spoke about aloneness as an inner way of being, but there was not clinging to anything, not grasping hold of anything, and therefore not being defined by anything. And connectedness clearly is so important in this alienated world. You know, how to nurture that sense of connection with the heart, to be able to go underneath the stories, the separations, the differences, and to truly see our own heart reflected in the heart of another. And there's something about being able to be in this world without being entangled, without being entangled, without leaning to have and nurture and treasure that sense of solitude and understand in some very real way that it is that solitude that really allows a genuine sense of interconnectedness to arise. Because in solitude, in true solitude, nothing is missing. Nothing is absent. So our relationship to life, to others, is not so governed by what we feel is missing within ourselves. And that is truly what allows that connectedness to arise. Then we can begin perhaps to sense what does it mean to live a life of freedom, valuing connectedness, valuing the end of separation, to value our bodies, as a doorway to learning how to be free in our bodies, to value our hearts as a doorway for learning what emotional freedom might mean, to value the places of caring we find ourselves in our lives as the places we actually learn about kindness and patience and compassion and also about letting go also about letting go. When we listen to nature and see the devastation in the natural world, then perhaps we actually see it really as a devastation of our own bodies. And that to heal our world is akin to healing our own bodies and to healing our hearts is akin to healing our worlds. It's to see ourselves as part of a whole, as one organism. Perhaps then we really do begin to know so deeply that the war and the violence, the oppression we see in our world, these are not abstracts perpetrated by others. That war begins with one single thought of ill will, just as peace begins with one single thought of kindness and compassion. So how could we ever imagine that there is one single thought or one single word or act that doesn't merit the greatest of all mindfulness? 
There's a verse in this tradition that says, however you live, put your whole heart into that life. Be dedicated and devoted. And if like the lotus flower, which grows out of the muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, you engage with your life without cherishing envy or hatred. Live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth. Then surely joy, peace, and freedom will live in your heart. And then this the longing for interconnectedness, the longing for freedom, for love that we set here in the poems, the realization of all of that is actually not just an, action, an accident. The boundless heart, compassion, unconditional loving kindness are not just accidents. They are seeds that we plant in our hearts and minds and that we nurture with mindfulness. Seeds that we plant that encourage us moment to moment really to know what it is we are feeding, what we are nurturing, consciously or unconsciously. That our heart's capacity for liberation or imprisonment somehow rests upon what it is that we feed in our hearts. That our, the hatred or love we experience somehow grows out of whatever seed it is that we nurture in our hearts. And many of the practices of loving kindness and compassion that we've come to know and begun to practice in this retreat, they're actually steps on the path of a liberated heart. They are practices of freedom. They're practices of wisdom, of vastness. And to know as practices, you know, freedom and wisdom and and vastness, they're not destinations or nouns. In a way, we need to translate them into verbs. In loving-kindness practice, you know, in the early parts, we practice with the dimensions of the benefactor and the neutral person. Because these dimensions, as perhaps all dimensions of loving-kindness do, but these dimensions, for me especially, give us the clues of what it means to develop a boundless loving-kindness that embraces ourselves and also embraces the difficult people and situations in our lives. We're encouraged to bring into our hearts, into our practice, the remembrance of a benefactor. In my own practice, I often begin with an archetypal benefactor. An image, a person who I deeply, deeply respect for their selflessness, their compassion, their generosity and kindness. And when I reflect on the kind of archetypal benefactor, it might be the Dalai Lama, it might be Aung San Suu Kyi, what I really, really see in these people is that these are people who have learned to embody tremendous dignity and courage and compassion in their lives. And they're not people who have no difficulties. They are not people who inhabit some idyllic, different landscape. 
But they are people who have learned to be upright in the midst of difficulty, with compassion, and who have such a profound trust in the power of compassion and loving kindness that nothing sways them. They ask for nothing in return. They embody the love and compassion that is without, without conditions. Then we come in our practice to reflect on a benefactor that we have a more personal relationship with, a grandparent, an elder, a teacher. And our gratitude and appreciation is for the same selflessness, the kindness without conditions, the generosity without expectations. And then we come to focus on the neutral person, the place that I think is the most powerful domain of loving-kindness practice. Because as we bring the neutral person into our attention and heart, what we are exploring is what it means to cultivate the same unconditional generosity and kindness for someone we don't know their story, we have no shared history upon which to base our likes and our dislikes, but we can know our connectedness, our shared longing for freedom, our shared longing to be free from harm and fear, our shared longing for acceptance and love. And from that universal story to the unknown story, we offer that heartfelt wish for the happiness and well-being of all. And it's really no longer the language of I and you. It is the language of us. It's the language of we. May we be happy and safe. May we be protected and peaceful. And we learn in the loving-kindness practice to keep coming back to the unconditional nature of that offering. We're not asking that a person be worthy or deserving of kindness. We're not asking a person to be perfect. We offer that unconditional kindness without asking for anything in return. And I think within the benefactor and the neutral person, we can begin to taste that liberated heart, the boundless kindness that is possible. It is upon that ground that we can begin to bring back that same quality, that same vast kindness to ourselves without conditions and to all the difficult people and events in our life. Loving kindness is a wisdom practice really dedicated to breaking down the barriers that separate I and you. It's a wisdom practice, really learning to free the heart of ill will and aversion, of hatred and fear. And many, many times we need to learn to inhabit the benefactor, to assimilate and reclaim that capacity to be a benefactor to ourselves. The benefactor to all the torments we can experience, all the judgments, all the feelings of insufficiency, of lack, all the ways that we can be harsh and demanding as part of our personal story. They may be patterns of conditioning that have a long history, 
but in the most simple and stark way in the present, they are suffering. They are suffering. And we really learn to bring loving kindness to the heart of suffering. We too, like everyone else in our life, are going to be asked to embrace loss, distress, struggle, people who have wronged us, people who are difficult. And we too are going to be asked to learn what it means to be upright, to make our homes in kindness and compassion rather than in ill will. We too are going to be asked to learn what it means not to practice suffering, but to practice freedom. Now, boundless loving-kindness doesn't necessarily arrive as some sort of mysterious or mystical sudden breakthrough. It's not something we earn or make ourselves worthy of. The boundless vast heart is truly a cultivation. It's a commitment. It's a dedication of the moment. It is the way we find the single dewdrop reflecting the whole of the moon. And each reflection, however long it lasts, manifesting the vastness of the dewdrop and realizing the limitlessness of the moon. Each moment of kindness. Each moment of practicing freedom. We're actually practicing healing the world. When the Buddha speaks of liberating the heart through loving kindness and compassion, he's not speaking about acquiring or having some nice, pleasant feeling or state, but truly a liberated heart knowing the emptiness of self and separation is to know in a very profound way the truth of interconnectedness and interdependence. All the kindness, all the wisdom, is we can find in our lives is born of living in the light of that truth. Knowing what suffering is, knowing what causes suffering, knowing how suffering can come to an end. Learning from nature, learning from love, about spaciousness, about change, about letting go, about birth. We are remembering something too important to forget the spaciousness and the liberation of our own hearts. There's a Flemish nun who wrote, All things are too small to hold me, I am so vast. In the infinite I reach for the uncreated. I have touched it, it undoes me wider than wide. Everything else is too narrow. You know this well, you who are also there. If we take just a couple of moments, cry a bit. However you live, put your whole heart into that life. Be dedicated and devoted. 
and if like the lotus flower which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, you engage with your life without cherishing envy or hatred. Live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth. Then surely joy, peace, and freedom will live in your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.